Is scholarly debate more effective than teaching a Bible study? Are you ready to face the truth? Face the Truth is the weekly podcast from the Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas, with our pastor and Bible teacher, Bishop Gregory Riggin. Thank you to everyone who is listening. I trust that today's episode will be a blessing to all of those who tune in. We welcome you to another interesting series on Face the Truth. It has been a while since we have been able to sit down and interview Bishop Riggin. During the course of our opening conversation, various topics were discussed, and we naturally progressed down the path of our next series. We had no intention of this ever being an episode. It was just a discussion that Bishop was having with Brother Hilton and myself. After we realized that Brother Hilton had hit the record button earlier in our conversation, we just jumped in and enjoyed ourselves for the next two plus hours. We thought it was just too good not to share with our listeners. The purpose of this conversation was to understand the effectiveness of scholarly debate when speaking to someone who refutes the truth. I know this series will help you because it shined a light on effective ministering for Brother Hilton and myself. Can the Bible be held to academic standards or reason and logic? What do you mean by that? I understand that there are times where it is metaphorical. As apostolics, we begin by taking the scripture literally, and then only when necessary, you know, convert it to being symbolism or metaphors. There's this whole thing, like I asked you a couple of weeks ago, if it'd be worth my time to study Greek and or like pursue theology in an academic setting. In my opinion, I don't know if this is true, and I'm not trying to discount every you know, theologian doctor out there. I'm just trying to understand if God even subjects his word to that kind of rigor and study, the discipline of man. I'm not saying that we shouldn't study the word of God. That is not what I'm saying. But taking the principles that are associated with academic form of study. Anytime people who are academics argue on a subject, you have hypotheses, you have theories, you have your different forms of argumentation, you have your different arguments themselves, you present them and then you rebut like individual points within that argument and whatever. Well, let's use the example that we discussed the other day, Brother Hicks and other preachers, you know, from false doctrines, they are submitting all of God's doctrine, all of God's word, all the truth to this form of conversation or whatever, and trying to get at the heart of the matter. And it seems to me that every single time they do that, it falls short. Like they cannot convince the other person with the truth because they walk away still believing what they believed. And so those individuals probably are not open to the truth. They have to be open, hungry for truth in order to be converted. But is there a case? Yeah, I guess it's subjected to that. If the person is not open, then God is not going to override their will. That's what I was thinking. It's their understanding that's under judgment, not the authenticity or the factualness of the Word of God. It's your yeah. understanding. Well, another thing you have to take in consideration here, too, if you're going to look at academic standards and all that, is there are some things in the Bible that God doesn't leave open for debate. Yeah. Such as His existence. Right. He just states it. Yeah, it's there. He doesn't mm-hmm. try to prove it. Right. He just states it. And so there are some things that you can't debate academically. Because it just requires faith. That's just the way God did it. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is, I'm not sure exactly how far you want to take the whole academic subjection 
But, you know, as we talked about, God used whatever vessels are available, even with their imperfections. Mm -hmm. And so there may be grammatical flaws. There may be, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So... And so then in that case, it it depends on who your target is. That's And that's where you get into becoming all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Right. And even in Mississippi, my approach to them had to be different. When I came here, my approach here had to be different in a lot of ways. Of course, I didn't know. I was not aware that we had a church full of Trinitarians. But with the help of God, my approach here was not the same approach I had taken in other places. And God knows that. So it depends on your audience and what kind of approach you take. I don't believe that the Bible is scientifically wrong. It's never been proven scientifically wrong. When men believed the earth was square, long before that, the scriptures spoke of the circle of the earth. Of course, it also spoke of the four corners of the earth. <laughs> it depends on your interpretation. <laughs> so it depends on the interpretation. <laughs> this is why you have to study to yeah. show yourself approved to God first. And then if your message is approved by God, then you can preach it. <laughs> yeah. So in debates, the Bible, the, authentic- the authenticity of it is not up for question until they get backed into a corner, right? Then they're going to start... Well, men, this is the interpreters. Do you see them go down that path to where when they start getting into the syntax and all oh, yeah. this stuff, where that's when they're going down these trails of, I can't figure it out at the surface level. And so they start picking apart the King James Version. And then yeah. they go back to the trying to dig themselves out. And it's yes. all based upon understanding. But God's word is forever yeah. settled in yeah. heaven. Because, yeah. you know, to me, one of the best verses to help explain the dual nature of Jesus Christ is John 3.13. Where Jesus says to Nicodemus, no man has ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Well, that verse does not appear in some of the newer translations. First mm-hmm. John 5 and 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then verse 8, and there are three that bear witness on the earth, the water and the Spirit and the blood, and these three agree in one. Well, verse 7 doesn't appear in a lot of the modern translations. Some people argue that's a Trinitarian verse. I don't see it that way because it ends up with these three are one, not there are three in one. Right. So there are some very key verses that come from the King James that, yeah, you get into a debate and some of these guys question. Right whether the verse is authentic. Well, it's not in these manuscripts. It's not it's or, questionable right. whether it even existed. Or yeah, or the way that the translator translated it was the best way that they have a better... Yeah, which we could do the same thing. Right. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of historical evidence to show that Matthew 28, 19, that first of all, that Matthew most likely did write it in Hebrew. Though we have no Hebrew copies existent. But there is historical evidence that points to that. And it would make sense because he was writing to the Jews. Right. Hmm. Secondly, that the original gospel, according to Matthew 28, 19, did not say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That it said in the name of Jesus. 
Wow. And, and this is found in some of the historical references of men like Jerome, who was one of the ancient church fathers, who quotes Matthew 28, 19, but quotes it saying in the name of Jesus. And he was a few hundred years after Matthew wrote it. But was he before or after Nicaea? Before Nicaea. Really? Wow. So this is where it comes into question. I mean, we could go down the same rabbit hole. Sure, sure. But what we do in the process is to cause the people sitting on the pew to question the validity of the entire Bible. Right. Well, and that's exactly how the Roman Catholic Church approached it, was like, you guys are too stupid to understand the word in its original language. Give that job to the priests, and then that's where they started perverting it. And there, well, James White, he's one of the predominant debaters today on these subjects, and that is his argument primarily, is that I am a consultant to, I think he's the New American Standard Version and also Amplified the Amplified Bible. He works on those Bibles and or those translations. And he will bring this up in a debate. And, and his whole point is like, you don't understand the text as well as I do. I understand the text. I'm the one that's helping these translators translate. Yeah, it's like, right. okay, well, you're basically saying that I'm too stupid to understand the word, firstly. And second of all, that we should just depend on you because you have more a better understanding. Well, frankly, I'm sorry. The last time that happened... <laughs> right. We got into a really bad Everything place. got really Inquisition perverted. Was Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Out. Yeah. So that's why I don't even like to start down that path. But if it sounds like if they're already going down that path, they've already discredited reading the word and accepting it the way it is. They're looking for a reason right. not to accept it. That was kind of a part of my question earlier about academics and things like that. Like, to what extent is that useful if you do go down those rabbit holes to get the education and then go out there and say, okay, fact, you guys want to talk about misrepresenting the original? Here's a scripture that's completely misrepresented, and you guys use it every day. I don't think it will ever serve a good purpose. I just don't. I don't think that you're going to accomplish what you hope to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Because let's say that you got a doctorate in classical Greek. Okay, so you get up and argue that this what this verse actually means. This, if that's not what they've always believed that it means, they just toss it out. I mean, yeah. you don't convince them. Yeah, and the other thing is, I'm actually almost defeating my own argument, which is the Bible is the absolute authority. If I can bring a better argument, I'm just one among literally probably millions of scholars that would be studying the text and adding commentary. And so, those that are honest-hearted. Find the truth. You know, I think of men like Talmadge French. One simple phrase. And it was while he was studying Greek class. But one phrase really caught his attention. And when Paul said, and he was told, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And when he started looking at that, he said what his professors were telling him was not what it was saying. That it was very clearly saying that it was invoking the name that brought about the washing away of sins. But it didn't convince any professors. Their traditions Mm -hmm. are the thing they're going to constantly fall back on. We've got thousands of years, hundreds of years, of men believing this is what the Scripture means. You can't come along now 
and tell us that that's not what it means because they're not open to it. Right. So, so you're, you're, you're wasting your time. Yeah. And that's why I think my books have been so effective is because I'm not trying to prove a point academically. I'm just going through it and letting the scripture speak for itself. Right. Yeah. The honest hearts are seeing it. Right. You're not appealing to the intellect. You're appealing to the hungry heart. Right. Right. And, and I've got testimony after testimony after testimony of people that picked up the book or were given the book and come back to the preacher and say, I've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. Right. I see there's only one God. It's just, I mean, I can't even tell you how many testimonies I've had. It's involved preachers. It's involved all kinds of folks. And again, it's not because I've come from an academic perspective. And I'm not having to go back, especially for the common individuals. I'm not having to go back and say, well, you know, if you go into the original language... Right. Though I make some references to that, it's only to confirm some point that I've already made. While debates helped me as a young convert, I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone actually being saved from a debate. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that has happened. I don't know. Usually both sides go in with their minds made up. And they're cheering on their speaker, and they don't walk away with any change of their ideas. I honestly don't know of very many others who, like myself, walked away from those debates with a determination that has, I mean, it's driven my whole life. What happened in those debates set the course of my entire ministry. But I don't hear that story anywhere else. I don't know of anybody else. I've never heard, and I'm sure it's happened, but I've just never heard of anybody else who was so impacted. You know, for me, it was a matter of timing. I knew nothing about the Scripture. There were just a lot of factors involved in the impact that those debates had on me as a young man. I didn't have anybody else in my family that was in the church. My pastor at the time, I love him and honor him, and I'm not saying this in any way to put him down, but he was not an intellectual man and not a great Bible teacher. And so to sit at the feet of someone like Marvin Hicks, who obviously knew the scripture and knew it well. All of those factors together is why it impacted me the way it did. And a lot of people that were sitting in those meetings didn't come from the same kind of situation I came from. Many of them were sitting, I mean, back in the 70s, a lot of pastors were Bible teachers. There was a lot of teaching that went on back in those days. This is before preaching became more of entertainment. And I hate to say that, but it really has become that in a lot of circles. But back then, there was a lot more teaching that went on. Not everybody was sitting out there in the congregation. New converts, not a lot of Bible teaching, not a lot of others that they could look to as quote-unquote heroes. All of those factors came together in my life in a way that shaped me that probably wouldn't shape a lot of other people just because of where I was coming from at the moment. But again, I don't know of very many people walking out of those debates and saying, I'm ready, baptize me in Jesus' name. Now, having said that, I do need to qualify. It has happened. I have heard of it happening, but I haven't heard of a lot of it happening. I've mentioned at 17 
I was the guest of a radio talk show on the subject of water baptism. I was a high school junior, maybe going into my junior year, between my sophomore and junior year. I don't remember now. Well, let's see, at 17, I've been in between my junior and senior year. So I was the guest of this radio talk show in Dallas for the subject of water baptism. I spent one hour debating this quote-unquote theologian. He was a, by his description, Messianic Jew. And I know that sometime shortly after that, one of the young men in our church was out knocking doors. And these two ladies started talking. It was two elderly women. I think they were sisters that were living together. I don't know if it was an apartment or what. I don't remember all the details, but somehow the conversation came up and they began to ask him about baptism. And then they told him, We were listening to this young man on the radio one day, and he convinced us, and we found a church that would baptize us in Jesus' name. Wow. So, you know, I know it happens. I didn't convert that man. In fact, the very next day, he had what he called open line. You could talk about any subject you wanted to. Most people talked about baptism, and in that next day, when I'm not sitting in front of him, now, the day I was sitting in front of him, he had made a comment, and he said, I'll say this for you, young man, you've got a lot of scriptures at your fingertips. Now, that's what he said to me face to face. But the next day, when I'm not there, he said, well, he just used the same scripture over and over and over and over. So he wasn't convinced. Right. I did him no good, did not convince him of anything. And he really set me up in a lot of ways because he had me on his Thursday broadcast. He did an, an open line call-in show on Friday. And then on Monday, he played a pre-recorded one-hour conversation with his Baptist pastor, who I met when I finished my time there because he had been sitting out there listening to us the entire time making notes and as soon as we were finished he stepped into the studio and recorded one hour without interruption Mm. to counter what i'd been given honestly maybe 20 minutes out of that hour maybe to make my case and the rest of it i was at the whim of whoever called in to answer their questions Mm. And there were some really crazy questions. Uh, One woman had called in and said, why do you take the word water so literally? You don't take fire literally. When John said, you know, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Why do you take water literally? I mean, just some really off the wall stuff. Right. Uh, One person called in and said, you know, the Bible says we're baptized into the body and that's the body of the church. No, it's the body of Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ. You know, there there were just things that were, somebody called and said, who baptized John the Baptist? What difference does that make to the conversation? Yeah. Right. It has nothing to do with us, but, you know, you're just at the whim of whoever calls in and whatever questions they want to throw at you. So we had a little bit of time to develop our case, and I think God helped us. In fact, that very question, who baptized John the Baptist, that threw me for a loop. I'd never heard that question. And here I am, 17 years old. I never heard that question. And I'm trying to think, how do I respond to this? Well, the host said, well, I imagine they're going to tell you he was an Old Testament saint. And it didn't matter. Well, yeah, that's the answer. I mean, that's, right. you know, thank God this guy answered it for me. <laughs> that's exactly right. He died before the New Testament came into right. being. And so it didn't matter. Who baptized John? I mean, now I've got a little bit better historical reference, and very likely John was a part of the Essenes, that that, that group that actually kept 
what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's very likely that wow. John had been a part of that group or a group like them when he went out. And they, they practiced baptism. Baptism was not just a New Testament creation, though they didn't call it baptism as such. And part of this is because we're dealing now with Greek terminology as opposed to Hebrew terminology. But the Jews practiced what was what we now call baptism. They practiced that regularly. They understood it as a part of their ceremonial ritual cleansing. What were they baptizing? They were actually using these mikvahs, these places that they had dug out as a way of ceremonially cleansing themselves. If they're going to go into the temple, they wanted to make sure they were clean before they went in. And so they would go into the mikvah as a form of what we would now call baptism to cleanse themselves and then come out. This is why, again, when you understand the way the Jews did this, this whole idea of baptism being just an outward form of an inward grace, that you're just making a statement to the world. It makes no sense because baptism came from Judaism and they understood it as a cleansing. That's why they did it. And that's why Peter would come along later and say, the like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. He had to add that because that's the way the Jews had seen it. They were cleansing themselves externally. Peter says New Testament baptism does something altogether different. It cleanses your conscience. It does what the Jewish ritual could not accomplish. And why? Well, because we now are using the name that's above every name, the name of the one whose blood was shed to give us cleansing. John probably was baptized. He probably did go through some kind of ceremonial cleansing, especially when you study the Essenines and you start understanding how stringent they were about absolute purity. And that also explains John come along and just calling these people vipers and addressing all the things they're doing wrong. It's very possible that much of what he learned, he learned from this community that was very, very stringent about purity and holiness and righteousness and separation and cleansing, purification. These things were very big to them yeah it's interesting that jesus said that you know among all men born of women there's none like right john the baptist so it seems to me he was the what the way paul said the the pharisee of the pharisees he's the how do you pronounce yes. it s essenes essenes of the essenes <laughs> yeah yeah he, he he and and that's it is there's a lot there but we could really go down some real rabbit trails right there that for Jesus to say that of John, who was a man who preached such strong messages of conviction. Whereas today's society, mm -hmm. it's all love, 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 love. Right. Just come as you are. God's not going to condemn you. There's now therefore no condemnation. 
to them that are in Christ Jesus. And they put a period right there. Right. Of course, the verse doesn't end there. The verse goes on. There's no condemnation to them who walk not after the flesh. Right. If you're not walking after the flesh, there shouldn't be any condemnation. But the church world today is wanting to say there's no condemnation, even to those who are walking after the flesh. If you think about Jesus putting these great accolades on John, who was a man that was condemning sin in every form and demanding that people prove their repentance before he would even baptize them. And Jesus elevated this man. And then you think about Paul being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the most stringent. Yeah of all of the sects of the Jews and that Paul described himself as one who went to the extremes among the Pharisees. And here he was the greatest revivalist of the new Testament times. And then you think about John, the apostle being the quote unquote disciple whom Jesus loved. And you start reading the things that John said in his epistles Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father's not in him. If any man he say that he loved God, and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. <laughs> they sound very passionate. Very passionate about purity, about holiness, about separation, about righteousness. And these are the men that Jesus elevated. Right. It's a different concept. It's a totally different paradigm than today's Christianity. And unfortunately, even the direction that much of the apostolic church is headed today, because much of the apostolic church today is trying to find ways around old-fashioned, quote-unquote, methods of holiness, righteousness. They're trying to find other explanations Mm. for scriptures that are not so demanding all those things that jesus highlighted in the men you just talked about they're trying to push it to the side push it to the side and say that it's not necessary right it's not important now you know one of the things that i mentioned the other night in our ministers class is i'm watching now people who call themselves apostolic try very desperately try to say that deuteronomy 22 5 has nothing to do with women wearing pants. I'm watching people say, this is talking about women not going into the military. that's, That's their explanation today. The amazing thing is, you go to Israel and the Hasidic Jews, who are today's Pharisees, they've got areas of their communities where they will not allow a woman to wear a pair of pants. Because they understand Deuteronomy 22.5 to mean that very thing. It's amazing to me that these brilliant, quote-unquote, scholars of today understand Hebrew idioms better than Hebrews. (laughs) Right. They're smarter than the Jews that have been interpreting the scriptures for years, which of course goes back to the whole message of the oneness. It's the same thing. They want to try to find a trinity and let us make man. Right. Verses that have been quoted by Jews for centuries, and the Jews never once have stopped and thought, hmm, there must have been more than one up there saying this. But the brilliant scholars of today 
want to tell us that that's got to prove there's more than one person in the Godhead. They even want to take the Hebrew number one, Ichat. Say that really means, it can mean a group. One group, not just one individually. I think it was Walter Martin who made that brilliant statement. And, and as proof, he talked about the grapes that Joshua and Caleb brought back from the promised land, saying that the Hebrew says they brought back a grape, but it meant a cluster of grapes. All right, if we're going to take that definition, then you're saying there's a cluster of gods. Right. Right. You, you can't be indiscriminate. You're going to use that word the way that they meant it in the Old Testament, then you've got to apply it consistently, and they're so inconsistent. Thank you, Bishop Riggin, for taking the time to answer our questions and provide such valuable insight on rightly dividing the word of truth. We invite you to join us next week on Face the Truth. Thank you to everyone who has joined us for today's podcast. We want you to know that we are here to help you in any way we can. If there is anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send your prayer request to prayer at olathetruth.com. That's prayer at olathetruth.com. If you live in the Kansas City metropolitan area, we invite you to join us for our services this week, Sunday morning at 10, Sunday evening at 6, and Tuesday evening at 7.30. For those who cannot attend, we will provide a live stream on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, and our website olathetruth.com slash live until our next podcast take care and God bless